neither one of us are the type of game person that takes a long time. We just do it. Welcome to Cardboard and Wine, episode 15. I'm Mamie. And I'm Josh. Grab a glass, pull up a chair, and let's talk about some games. Today on the show, we finally discuss a wine-themed game. Stay tuned as we crush on Vital Lacerda's Vinos. Get it? That's a wine pun. I got it. All right, Mamie, welcome back to Cardboard and Wine Studios. I know. It's good to be back here. Seems like it's been a while, but I think it's just because the last couple of weeks have been back to school and it's been really busy and crazy. Yeah, it has been the normal amount. We've had... <laughs> A little bit of break in the hot weather and some foreshadowing of fall. It's been amazing. I have been walking our puppy at like 6.30 in the morning, and there have been a couple mornings that it's cold. Yeah, I love I, it. Yeah, no, I love the actual feeling of cool air. And I decided this week that that fall is definitely the best season. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's above and beyond the others as my favorite season. I wish it were longer. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I think what I like about living somewhere with four distinct seasons is I really like change. I get bored of the same thing for too long. So just when you get tired of one season, it's a different season. That's true. I don't know. I think winter and summer could each be a little shorter and I would be happy. That's probably true. But we're not here to talk about the seasons today. We're here to talk about board games and specifically... And wine. And wine. And we have both. Yeah, so in honor of our game this week, we are drinking a Vino Verde from Portugal. Very thematic. Exactly. And I learned, you know, I like to research the wines. Vino Verde is what it sounds like, right? Green wine. Uh, But it's not because the grapes are green, like a type of green. Like color green. Right. It's because they're actually young. They're kind of underripe. And they're largely exported. And they're actually the... The grapes? The wine. And they're actually the most... Exported Portuguese wine after port. Port, obviously, the most exported wine from port Portugal. From Portugal, yeah. exactly. And actually, Portugal is the fifth largest exporter of wine in the world. Yeah, I don't think I realized that it was it was up there. Yeah. So apparently, though, it's a common wine. Ah. Ha-ha. See, we're doing wine puns tonight. That connoisseurs of Vino Verde say that it never tastes as good as it does in Portugal. But the Broadbent guys brag that theirs does. They say they wanted to fix it. They ended up partnering with a known vineyard. And they ship all of their Vino Verde in refrigerated containers so that it's as fresh and light and crisp when it gets to the U.S. as it is in Portugal. I wonder if that's this similar to, uh, I hear people say that about Guinness, how it's never as good as it is if you're actually in Ireland. And I don't like Guinness, but I have never had it. Direct from the tap in Ireland, so maybe that's... I had it from a tap in an Irish bar once. Does that count? Did you like it? No, not really. Okay. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's try this Vino Verde. Okay. So I have made it known on the show before that my main preference, my primary preference is typically not white wines. I'm a red wine person generally, but this is pretty good. I, I like this. I'm a fan. I think Vino Verde might be one of my favorite white wines. It just is so light and crisp, and it has that little bit of effervescence. It's not sparkling or semi-sparkling, but there's still just that little bit of bubbliness to it. Yeah, and I like there is a tartness to it, but not overly tart. Um, and it's and it's dry, but still a little bit of flavor. Yeah, it's, it's very delicious. Very well balanced. Yeah, very good. Where does that effervescence come from? Is this like a champagne or... 
Yeah. So one of the things I read when I was reading about Broadbent's production is that a lot of kind of modern winemakers of Vino Verdes are infusing artificial carbonation. But in this one, it is still reliant on the effervescence formed during fermentation. Well, as a microbiologist by training, I approve of that. Yeah, the wine naturally has malic acid in it from the grapes, and they infuse it with bacteria that turn that malic acid into lactic acid, and CO2 is a byproduct. If there's one thing I learned studying bacteria, it is they are not all bad. No, in, in this one, they are wonderful. Well, I was looking over your shoulder a little bit while you were doing some of this research on today's wine, and I happened to note that Vino Verde wine comes from the Minho province in the north of Portugal. And that was interesting to me. The thing I was curious about was, as we'll discuss in our Game of the Week, Vinhos, there is a map of Portugal with different wine regions or different provinces of Portugal. And I was curious if the province where Vino Verde was actually represented on the game board, and it is, the Minho province is on the game board. And the thing I thought was cool was in reading about Vino Verde, the wine, those wines are typically not meant to be stored or aged, but are often enjoyed soon after bottling. And in the game, the special characteristic of vineyards from the Minho province are you are not allowed to build a cellar to age your wine. So how cool is that? I mean, that is about as thematically correct as you can get. Yeah, so bonus points for <laughs> Vital Lacerda for that one. I thought that was cool. Mamie, just wanted to take a moment to remind everyone that we are on Patreon now. If you'd like to support the show, you can visit patreon.com slash cardboard and wine, or you can click the Become a Patron button on our website. And if you click the button, we will send you one of our cardboard and wine buttons. Click the button, get a button. And in other very exciting news, we are getting really close to having a thousand followers on Instagram. Yeah, that's been really fun. The Instagram com board game community is is really neat and really supportive. And it's been great being part of that and sharing fun photos of the games we've been playing. So we wanted to, to celebrate this milestone with a contest. Yeah, so we're going to do an Instagram giveaway to celebrate a thousand followers. To be eligible and to know what's going on, you need to do two things. One, follow us on Instagram, if you aren't already, at Cardboard and Wine. And two, listen to the podcast. Yeah, and we will announce those details on Instagram. But as a spoiler, it will certainly have something to do with listening to an upcoming episode of the show for a clue. Dun, dun, dun. All right. Very exciting. And and also looking to the future, uh, talking about future episodes. On our next episode, we will continue this cardboard and wine theme, and we're going to be talking about viticulture, which is the most common request we have gotten to review a game. So we will finally be talking about viticulture on the next episode. And we're going to take a little bit of time in that episode to compare Viticulture and Vinos, since those are the two kind of main wine-themed games. Yeah, that should be pretty fun. All right, Mamie, one thing I thought would be cool is, is to change things up a little bit with uh, a segment on our show. So normally we, we've just sort of freestyled talking about some games we've played since the last episode, but I thought what might be cool is if each of us could share a memorable gaming moment since the last episode. Oh, yeah, that's very easy. I mean, my most memorable moment of the last couple of weeks was definitely when we beat the mind. We did it. In our last episode, we talked a little bit about the mind and, and 
the process of that game. And it is, I don't know, intense, tense. But a week ago, we finally were able to get all the way to level eight with four players. It was awesome. Um, Our friend Megan, who we game with quite a bit, and her girlfriend Corinne were over. And honestly, it's kind of crazy that we were able to beat it because... I'm really surprised. I mean, we, we have two kids and they had a boy that came with them and the children were running around and loud and jumping and banging and I really can't and interrupting believe, us every Interru- oh yeah five interrupting minutes. us sitting at the end of the table I mean it, I can't believe we were able to focus enough to play much less win but we did somehow the four of us we were in sync yeah I think it was fairly ironic that we recorded our last episode on the mind and then we happened to beat the game like three days later <laughs> uh, but I'm, but it's exciting we got to share it now because. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was cool. It was a fun fun experience. I'm continuing to just really love the heck out of that game. I will say, uh, one of our regular gaming friends, Jeff, who we've talked about on the show before, I shared with him that we we beat the bind, and uh, he was a little disappointed that he said, I "Always hoped when you beat it, it would be when I was there playing." <laughs> so sorry, Jeff, but we can you can always help us beat it the second time. I know there are more opportunities to beat it. Yeah. What was your memorable moment of the week? Well, for me, it was definitely our play of Dominant Species last week. So that is a game I had played once before and was excited to receive my GMT reprint of Dominant Species that came in probably a couple months ago, over the summer at some point. And I know that's a little more of an epic game. You know, it can last, you know, three to four hours so I went to the trouble of actually scheduling a time that worked for some some folks in our gaming groups that I thought would enjoy it. And we all gathered together last Sunday for a rousing game of Dominant Species, and it met all my expectations. What did you think, Mamie? It was really fun. I really, really enjoyed it. I got to play as the insects, which were green, so that was great. <laughs> I have to be and... honest, I was not sure what you would think of Dominant Species, if you would like it, but I think... I think we now have a fan for life because... Because I won. You won. You, but that's not you the were only reason. I really enjoyed it. But it was really fun to be the insects, the little guys, and to come from sort of behind. I mean, I had a little bit of a disadvantage to begin with and to dominate the planet. Yeah, you were bottom of the food chain, but in that's the end right. of the day, you were the dominant species uh, or dominant class, I guess I should say. Uh, yeah, that was just such a fun time. We played with five players um, and... You know the game is uh, it's it's very swingy. Uh, there are these domination cards that have a, a significant impact on the game state. And you know there was a period of time I jumped out to an early lead. I was the reptiles, the snakes, um, and you know I was running up the the score track. But then um, then our friend Dave, who was the spiders, he was sort of spreading himself self throughout the earth. There was a time at which, like, it was legitimately creepy how many arachnids there were on the board. They were everywhere. But, you know, the thing that I I remember is we just had, I mean, it's a really in-your-face game. I mean, really, every move you make is directly (laughs) confrontational with someone else. But we had some really great laughs uh, during that game. Which is interesting because I tend to avoid games that have that much confrontation, but I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, and I think one reason Dominant Species is as popular as it is, is at its core, it really is a war game, except instead of countries battling it out uh, or different armies battling it out, uh, you have the biology animal theme. And I think that makes it more approachable to a wider group of people. 
I mean, it definitely did for me. You had to have a hard time getting me to play a war game. But when it's animals and biology, I'm all in. And it was really fun. Yeah. So we fun. need to play it a little more and then we'll talk about it on the show. Absolutely. All right, Mamie. Well, without further ado, let's get into our game of the week. Vinos. Vinhos, which is the Portuguese term for wines, is an economic game about the business of winemaking. In the game, you take on the role of an entrepreneur striving to make your mark as a successful wine producer in the various regions of Portugal. Over six years of harvest, represented by six rounds in the game, players purchase and operate vineyards, construct wineries, hire farmers and enologists to improve their wine's value, consult with wine experts, sell wine to local establishments, ship barrels overseas to expand their influence, and present the best wines at three trade fairs, hoping to impress the wine magnates and become the most prestigious winemaker in all of Portugal. Man, that was fun to write and say. (laughs) (laughs) I think now I'm ready to go play a game of Vinhos. Yeah, so how did we first come to play Vinhos? Well, I mean, it's a wine-themed game. And we love wine, and we love games, so it kind of seems like a given. So Vinos is a game by now famous and very well-respected game designer Vital Lacerda, who is actually from Lisbon. Uh, he's Portuguese. Oh, well, that makes sense. And, and not surprisingly, many of his games feature Portugal as a setting. And typically, he's known for heavier European-style strategy games. And the first one I actually played was one of his more recent titles, Lisboa. And, and Lisboa is kind of a cool thematic game about the reconstruction of Lisbon, of the capital, uh, following a historical earthquake that then led to a flood that then led to fires. That sounds pretty terrible. Yeah. And so the whole game, you're trying to clean up the rubble and rebuild the city. Um, So pretty neat. Uh, But this game is, is similarly has to do with wine production within the country of Portugal. But one feature of his games that I really enjoy is they force players to manipulate multiple variables that are all interrelated to try to generate some kind of engine. So it's an engine building type of game um, that will eventually enable them to score the most points. And and in Vinos, that involves buying combinations of vineyards with different special abilities, deciding whether you want to upgrade your vineyards with sellers or wineries or workers, whether you want to use your limited number of wines and barrels you produce to sell for money, which you're definitely going to need, or to ship them away for victory points, or save those barrels for getting these in-game scoring tiles, which we're going to discuss later. And there's just lots of rich decision-making. And you're right, we do love wine. So getting Vinos was kind of a no-brainer. I do want to point out that Vinos was originally published in 2010 and was one of Vital Asserta's first titles. Um, And in 2016, the game was re-released as a slightly different version. It was re-released as the Vinos Deluxe Edition. And and that includes the special vintage 2016 version of the game. And and I heard heard an interview with him, and he said he felt he had grown as a designer and wanted to tweak some things about the game. So the 2016 version is a somewhat streamlined version of the original game. It's not drastically different, but it is somewhat different. So the game that we're going to be discussing today is the 2016 Deluxe Edition. We read over the 2010 rules, and they look really interesting. We considered trying that one, 
but there's really enough in the 2016 version that we're going to stick with that one, which brings up the fact that when you purchase the deluxe edition, you get really two full games. One side of the board is the 2016 deluxe edition, and then the other side is the original 2010 edition, and the box contains all the bits to play either of those games, which is really cool. I mean, we will go back and play the 2010 yeah, I was reading some of those rule differences just yesterday, and I was getting excited to to try it out because it, it looks neat. Um, so, Mamie, let's talk a little bit about the components of Venus. Yeah, so Venus comes with a. I mean, this is a fairly heavy game, and there are a lot of different both wooden and cardboard yes, components. Heavy, physically heavy, right? Physically heavy. It's a big physical box. weight. Yes, it is a large, but box. it does fit in our shelves. It does fit in our IKEA Calyx shelves. Um, but there are um, a variety of different wooden meeples. There are those awesome little wooden wine barrels. And then there are also some wooden discs. The wine barrels are cool. They are really cool. They're my favorite, I would say, my favorite component. Speaking of those player colors, I really love the player colors. They're like a deep, rich color. And I'm usually purple because there's not green, which makes me a little bit sad. Which makes me sad because I'm usually purple when you're green <laughs> and now you're purple. So it throws me. And sometimes you try to move my piece, but we, we're working on it. Um, but they are really nice, rich colors. And the meeple for your player, um, as well as the meeples for the farmers and the enologists, they're all slightly different shapes that reflect their job. So they're not just kind of the typical meeple shape. They're cut out a little bit more intricately, which is just cool. And, you know, there's also quite a few cardboard components. I, I like a game with real coins. I'm not going to lie. But the cardboard that's used for the money and the wine tokens and the sellers and all the other tiles is a good quality. It's a thick, you know, sturdy, high quality cardboard. It's not, you know, flimsy. And then the other thing that I really love about this game is how, how clear all the symbology is. So on all the different components, the different um, tiles and on the game board itself, it's really easy to sort of tell what is going on and, and what the different actions are. You know, that's important when a game has as many different things going on as this game does. And the designers definitely did a good job of making it clear. And, you know, when things are a little confusing, just, you know, you can't figure it out by looking at the board or at the tile, the rule book is really, really thorough and clear. I mean, I don't think we've had to search BGG for any clarification with this game. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. The The rule book of Vinos Deluxe Edition is outstanding. Um, and one thing that's cool is there's a separate book for for reference of the iconography and how to set up the game. Because really, once you learn the rules of any game, you don't always remember exactly, you know, how much money do you start with and how many of these do you get? And so having that all in one place is really useful. Um, and in addition, there are two full rule books, one for the 2016 version of the game, one for the 2010 version. And one thing I found especially neat is that in the 2010 reserve version of the game, all the rules that are different than the 2016 rules are actually written in a different color, making it easy to just scan for what's different. So now that we've learned the 2016 game, we don't have to go through and reread the entire 2010 rule book just to brush up on what and, and find what's new. They, they highlight it right there for you. Uh, but yeah, really great rule book, great examples, one of the best that I've seen. And another thing, Mamie, you know, I really enjoy organizing my games. No. I would say... Uh, almost enjoy organizing games as much as playing games. <laughs> not not as much, but almost as much. Uh, so, you know, typically for a big, heavy game like Vinos with lots of components, lots of pieces and bits, I'm probably investing another 10 bucks on containers and Plano boxes. 
but not this game. These Eagle Griffin inserts for these Vital Asserta games are just outstanding. It's a nice molded plastic. There's a space for everything. And it even has like a nice plastic lid that goes on top of everything that holds all the pieces in place. It makes the setup and teardown super easy, all with the standard insert. Very nice. A place for everything and everything in its place. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the gameplay. So the components are awesome, but is the game awesome? So uh, I'll start with this one. I mean, we mentioned that in Vinos, you're going about the work of establishing vineyards and wineries, but you accomplish all this through the core game mechanism, which is action selection. The game only lasts six rounds, and in each of these rounds, each player will take two actions. So what that means, oh, and everyone gets one final action at the end after the last wine fair. So what this means is at the end of the game, each player only gets 13 turns total. But a lot happens in those 13 turns for sure. Um, And in the center of the game board are the nine actions you can take. So really, um, this big complex game all happens through players carrying out some combination of these nine core actions. And really, it's only eight actions because the buy a vineyard action is in two different locations. All the actions are pretty straightforward. Um, As I mentioned, two of them are purchasing vineyards from one of the nine regions of Portugal. Um, And one thing that's kind of neat about that decision is each region of Portugal where you can buy a vineyard has some special ability or bonus that is associated with it. You know, now that you mention that, And now that we've seen that the region that the Vino Verde comes from doesn't have the ability to have a cellar, I wonder if the abilities of the other regions are thematically correct based on what's grown in those regions. Yes, that is going to be a way that I waste my time this week is to (laughs) research the different regions of uh, Portugal that are wine producing and see if I can find an overlay with the special abilities. Because there there are certain regions where... When you build a vineyard, you get a free farmer or you get a free seller or your wine is automatically uh, worth one extra one extra value just by being from that region. So it would be interesting to see if that has something to do with some actual feature of that region. So besides buying vineyards, there's an action space where you can build wineries. There's one where you can hire farmers or enologists who are workers that boost the value of your wine when you produce One action is to build cellars. One is to purchase advice from some wine experts, which play kind of a minor role in the game, but essentially can give you some bonuses or benefits throughout the game. Then there are actions that let you do some things with barrels of wine you've produced. So there's one action that lets you sell a barrel to a local establishment, which is a primary way of getting money. Um, And then an action allowing you to ship a barrel overseas to earn victory points. And then finally, the last action in the center is just to pass and adjust the turn order. And this is also the action where you submit wine for the wine fair. So each of those actions on their own is really straightforward. Get a new vineyard, get a seller, get a hire a worker. But it's interesting because some thought definitely goes into the order of the actions that you take. You know, if you try to take the action where the turn token is, then you have to pay a tax. And if you move to a space where someone already is, you have to pay them. And so, you know, that takes some consideration and you know where that round marker is going to move. So you can kind of play based on that, but sometimes you need to go where it is and pay the tax. Yeah, and also if you move to a non-adjacent space, you have to pay a tax of a dollar. 
And, and a dollar doesn't sound like a lot, but actually it can make a big difference in this game, especially if you've spent all your dollars already, which has certainly happened to us. A I time think that or two. happened to both of us in our last game. I mean, there's not a lot of money in this game. A dollar, you know, seems like a small amount, but I mean, I would say at most you maybe have $20 in your bank at any point in time. Yeah, we should point out at the end of the game, the game in scoring, you, you do get some victory points depending on the amount of money that you have left over and the maximum victory points you can get is $20. So that pretty much means having $20 would be a ton of money. So for most of the game, you're circulating between, I would say, 0 and $10. And, but I want to say this, those little taxes, you know, those little restrictions on where which action you can take and, and it costing you something uh, to move to certain certain actions is one of those cool Vital Lacerda mechanisms that are really a minor part of the game. You know, that didn't have to be included. You could just move it or maybe you can move anywhere that's not adjacent. But by adding those on, it really adds some more consequence and consideration um, to what you do and when. Just an added little layer of of strategy and thought that goes into um, the timing of your actions that I think is cool. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of decision-making that goes into this. I mean, for the most part, you're taking these actions, starting new vineyards, which you have to have room for. By the way, you only have room for up to five on your player board, or adding wineries, workers, and sellers. But at the end of each of the six years, there's a production phase where all of your vineyards produce wine, and any wine that's already in storage has to shift over. You know, it ages one step to the right. Uh, If you have a seller... You're able to keep it longer and increase the value. But if you don't, it turns into vinegar and you have to throw it away. So really, depending on the weather that year, which is another really, really interesting mechanism in this game, there's a vintage tile that tells you what the weather is going to be. And it might be a great, beautiful weather year and your wine is of a plus two quality. Or it could be a terrible year and all of your wine is a minus two quality. Yeah, and that's true for all the players. That's a universal situation that everyone has to deal with. And you don't know what's going to happen from year to year. Yeah, and after the third, fifth, and sixth years, there's a wine fair, and each player has to present a wine, and there's a lot of interesting decisions that go into that. One of the other things that shows up on those vintage tiles is what the experts are looking for at the wine fair. So they might be looking for a red wine with a quality of six from certain regions, and so you have to kind of anticipate what might show up at that wine fair. Uh, and the wine fair and the scoring of the wine fair, basically who wins the fair, is a big part of the game. Yeah, so let's talk about this wine fair for a second. So, you know, this game, if you took the wine fair out, uh, could be a game. I could imagine someone designing a game that just has the mechanisms of purchasing some vineyards and hiring some workers and upgrading it and producing wine. You sell some, you ship some, you get victory points, and boom, you've got a game. Maybe In pretty fact, good. that might be the game we talk about next week. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so, <laughs> but then there's this whole wine fair thing that happens three times during the game. And, and so one thing that you're constantly mindful of is before the fair occurs, you need to select one of your wines that you will present to the fair. So as part of the wine fair, there's this completely separate scoring track, these wine fair points. And so every player has a player marker, and depending on the value of the wine you present to the fair, you'll go up on this wine fair track. And, and several things happen with this, with this wine fair track, but um, as you said, Mamie, you're trying to accomplish a few different things. 
on one hand, you're trying to win the fair, which occurs by being up the farthest on the the wine fair track. And by doing that, you'll get sequentially more victory points if you're first, second, third place um, in the wine fair each year. However, you're also trying to please these wine magnates. And as you mentioned, from year to year, what they want is totally different. And they have barrels. And so you, you get more barrels, and these barrels are critical in the game by presenting a wine that pleases uh, two of the three magnates. And if you, if you play your cards just right over the three uh, wine fairs throughout the game, you will collect your maximum of two barrels each time for all of your six barrels. And you need those barrels because selling those barrels is how you get money. But even more importantly, shipping those barrels is a major source of victory points. Yeah. And, and, and we should mention too, as part of the wine fair, the last step of the wine fair is you can discard any extra wines you have to get these these special tiles. And towards the beginning of the game, there are tiles that essentially you can take into your tableau and you can use them to give you extra actions just for you on your turn. So we mentioned you only have 13 actions you can take. You're only going to have 13 turns during the game, but by collecting these um, these extra action tiles during the wine fair, um, they give you extra actions you can take on a turn. But as the game progresses, these get replaced by these special purple tiles that are all about in-game scoring. But the only way you can take those is discard a wine and pair them up with a barrel. So you have to have these barrels in order to, uh, to get these in-game scoring tiles. And I would say you could not win this game if you completely ignored the in-game scoring tiles. What do you think? I think I might have done that in our first game, and it did not turn out well. I mean, there's a lot of decisions going on about how you will use your wine. Um, You know, if you produce a lot of small value wines, you might do great at getting those special tiles, but you're not going to win the wine fair. And there's a lot of points that come in the wine fair. And you may not, you know, please the magnates and get your barrels, which are essential. So there's a lot of different decisions that you have to make in order to figure out the best way to utilize the wine you're making. Yeah, that is that is definitely true. So so Mamie, there's a lot to this game, and we certainly are not discussing everything. But what, is, what are some of your favorite things about Venus? I mean, there is a lot that I like about this game. I mean, it's about wine, right? So I like that. But, you know, it's kind of my ideal for a heavier game. It's complex. It definitely requires a lot of thought and strategy. But I don't find it particularly stressful. There's not that sort of scarcity economy that some games have that stresses me out. I mean, the money a little bit. A little, but it's not... It's not super intense. There's also not a lot of direct adversarial play, although I did enjoy that in Dominant Species. But, you know, you can definitely hate draft. You can b- take a spot that you know someone else wants or take a, a um, one of those special tiles that you know somebody else wants. But it's not really a main component of the game. You're You're mostly working to build your own empire, which is something that I really like. If I had to say one thing that's really my favorite – and it's really kind of unique. I think it's those changing seasons based on those vintage tiles. I mean, it's really cool that at the end of each round, the weather changes and um, it impacts kind of the quality of wine that you're producing. And it also changes what those magnates are looking for. Uh, I just think that's really a unique mechanism that I haven't really seen before. And it adds a lot of variety to the game and kind of an added level of strategy. I really like it. I like everything about this game. Yeah, I, I agree with, with all those things. Uh, for, for me, I really love engine building games, and, and this is certainly one. 
you know, you're putting together your vineyards and upgrading them with wineries, workers, sellers that all are going to help you produce better wine. But then you have to decide whether you're going to sell those wines for money, which we mentioned is tight in the game, or if you're going to ship barrels of wine away for instant victory points and to position yourself for some pretty substantial in-game victory points. But it's not a no-brainer decision to do that because as we were talking about, the number of these barrels that you have in the game is limited. The maximum you could have total is eight. So by shipping one away, you're getting victory points up front, but you're effectively taking that barrel out of circulation and you can't use it to claim those in-game scoring tiles that we mentioned are, are really important. So, you know, it's just a lot of really challenging but interesting decisions to be made. And I think, I think one thing I like about it is the decisions aren't always obvious and straightforward. It's not like, well, obviously you should do this next and then you should do that next. No, there's often several things you can do and it's not clear which is going to be optimal. Yeah, and we should mention, as, as we said, you know, you're trying to do all this, but you're trying to do it all in 13 turns. Right, yeah. and one of those turns might be get a seller <laughs> for one or two of your four vineyards you have. Well, that's one of your thirteen turns right there. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways you could do it. Um, yeah, it's definitely a quicker game for a game with this much weight. I feel like that does add a little stress sometimes. I mean, there are definitely times when I wish there was another set of turns, but on the other it hand, mo- it moves quickly. It moves very quickly, and I kind of like that. That it's not a four-hour game. Yeah, I was looking this up because um, I log our our plays and, and log how how long games take, which I've, actually is really fascinating. I would encourage people to log how long it takes to play games because I found before I started doing that that you don't always have a good realistic estimate of how long a game well, it's takes. It's very easy to lose yourself in a good game. It is, but we you know we've played this game a number of times, and our average play length is an hour and fifty six minutes. Um, I will say that is somewhat dependent on player count. So, Mamie, we played this game just yesterday afternoon, and we played it at right around an hour, uh, an hour and 10 minutes. That's great. I mean, for a game of this that's weight, amazing. Um, that's pretty great. We played it with four friends um, the other day, and, you know, it was closer to two and a half hours, So, which is a little bit on the longer side. Um, but some of those were not as familiar with the game either. Th- and so when you definitely. add, you know... The familiarity and the two-player, the fact that we can play this game in about an hour is amazing. We play quick, though, me and you. When it's just the two of us, we we move. We do. Neither one of us are the type of game person that takes a long time to think about what they're going to do. We just do it. <laughs> just do it. It's just a game, right? That's right. <laughs> all right. That's all great, Mamie. Uh, I mean, you sort of answered this question already, but anything you don't like so much about Venus? So there isn't really much that I don't like. I would say the one thing that seems a little bit unbalanced to me is the scoring of the wine fair in the two-player game. And I noticed this a lot when we played yesterday. Um, According to the instructions, when you're playing a two-player game, you use the first and the third place points in for scoring the wine fair. And that's, I mean, that's a pretty big spread. And I found it a little bit frustrating yesterday because Josh was winning all the fairs and he was getting so far ahead of me that I felt like there was no way that I could come back. I mean, in the end, we did the calculations and even if we had used the first and second place, he still would have won by a lot. So perhaps it doesn't really matter except for my ego, but it just felt a little unbalanced to me. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And one thing that I'm certainly interested in exploring more with future plays, um, I read a thread on Board Game Geek where someone was complaining that they felt the wine fair part of the game was a little bit imbalanced. And we should mention that 
there are three wine fairs that have that separate scoring track. But an important feature of the wine fair scoring track is that your position on that track does not reset between the fairs. And I think that's to signify thematically that if you perform well at the first fair, your what would be the word? Reputation. Your reputation yeah. is then high going into the second fair. Um, however, if you win the first fair by three points, you already have a three-point lead going into the second fair. So in, in our various plays, you, know, you can have a person that becomes a little bit of a runaway leader. Um, there are ways to mitigate that. But I do agree with you, Mamie. I think that's a little bit harder to mitigate in a two-player game than it might be in a four-player game. I definitely wonder if it's even possible to win the game without winning any of the wine fairs. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I think one play, there was one play where, I think it might have been my first play where the person who won was not necessarily the person who won. I think they might have won the first fair, but not the other two. But, but it's see, also I think you have to win at least one. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I tell you what, we should play a game. Our next game, I'm going to completely ignore the wine fair and okay. try to win. I mean, that's kind of what I did last night. It didn't work out that's so true, well. It didn't work out. So we'll see. Um, you know, it would be really interesting, I think, to try that. I think that's the only part of this game that to me felt a little a little wonky in terms of balance, but otherwise it's really a great game. Well, we've covered this already, but theme of the game? I mean, it's wine theme. It's awesome. I, I mean, I really do like how true to the theme this game is. Unlike some other wine theme games, which we'll talk about later, it actually seems to really accurately portray the process of owning and operating vineyards. And it, it does. It goes beyond just making the wine to the marketing and the selling and the promotion at this fair. It's really cool. I think I maybe even learned a little bit about the process by playing it. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I agree. This is a great game. Uh, I mean, even if the theme was car manufacturing, right, this would be a really great game. I don't know if I'd like it as much. Well, I think, I think you're right. I honestly don't think I would like it as much without the wine theme, uh, but I would still like it. It's yeah. still a good game. Um, I think it was the wine theme that initially drew me to it. Um, but all I have to say is, is Vital Lacerda comes up with some really interesting themes. I mean, we purchased The Gallerist after we purchased Vinos. Which we haven't played yet. We haven't played, but that's a, how cool of a theme is that? Yeah, we need to break that one out soon. And, and we already talked about Lisboa, a really interesting theme there. Uh, but yeah, theme, wonderful for us, perfect for us. And it just looks gorgeous on the yeah. table with a glass of wine next to it. So nice. Um, all right, well, when would we break this game out? I mean, this one is definitely not a game for our casual gamer friends or the kiddos. I mean, this is it is a meaty game. Um, it's definitely one we would save for our more serious gaming friends. Yeah, I agree. This game requires people who are willing to tolerate a 30-minute rules explanation. <laughs> That's true. For and sure. then occasional clarification. That's right. Um, but then also people who are willing to sit for two hours to play a game. Um, you know, if you're, if you're new, if you're brand new to the game and you're playing experienced players, you're going to lose. But really, most good strategy games are like that. You know, as I mentioned, I track our stats, including scores. And I think this is one of those games that it's really fun to compete against your own previous best scores as much as it is trying to beat the other players. Because, yeah. you, because you do improve over time with pl repeated plays. Definitely. I mean, I'm still working on that, but I think with continued plays, it'll be even better. And, and I really have enjoyed, you know, we've played enough times now where, you know, you kind of fall into the strategies you normally try, but I really am looking forward to trying some different strategies and see how that works. 
Yeah, I want to see you try not going to the fair. Yeah, because you think you're going to beat me. <laughs> you're going to destroy me. Maybe if I we do should that. play right after this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, Mamie. Well, we've talked quite a bit about Venus. So, what are your final thoughts on the game? Well, just to remind everybody, at Cardboard and Wine, we use a wine-themed rating scale for all of our games. One is an empty bottle. Sad. Disappointing. Needs to go in the recycling bin. Two is a two-buck chuck. If there's nothing else around, it might do. Three is a wine in the box. There are things we like, things we don't like. Four is a nice vino verde. Easy to enjoy regularly. We've poured a glass and we're looking forward to enjoying some more. And five is a big, bold California Cabernet that's going to only get better with age. All right. Well, where does Vinos fall for you? So this may be the first. I can't remember. But for me, Vinos is definitely a five. It is that big, bold game that I feel like I'm just really starting to just wrap my head around it. All the different levels of strategies and different you know, possible ways that you can play. I love it. It's so fun. And I want to play more. I think I like it better with more than two players. I think three or four, it's better for me. But it's it's a top game. One you think you'll enjoy playing in the future. Definitely. I think I will enjoy it more the more we play it. That's the hallmark of a good game, That's I right. would say. Well, I am totally in step with you. For me, this is absolutely a five. This is a top-shelf game, for sure, for lots of reasons. Uh, Personally speaking, it's exactly the type of game that I generally like. It's an engine-building game with decisions that aren't necessarily obvious. And it's really fun to tinker with different aspects of putting your wine estates together and see what works and what doesn't work. And the fact that you're also dealing with differing weather conditions, which is something, Mamie, you said you really liked, is just a fun twist. Not totally sure about the balance of the wine fair, but yeah. I'm interested in exploring that further. Um, and I do like that that does add one component of the game where there is a little more tension among the players is, is going for trying to win that wine fair, which is, which is kind of a neat feel that that gives to the game. But, you know, when you factor in the gameplay, which is great that we talked about, but also the outstandingly good production value, the game insert, and the fact that there is another complete game on the back of the board that introduces some different twists on the game. And I was really getting excited just reading about them. And on top of all that, it's a theme that we really love. So this is a five. We're going to be playing this game and loving this game for many, many years to come. We still have another whole side to try to play. I know. It's great. All right, guys, thanks for listening to Cardboard and Wine. For show notes, links, and other fun info about the games we discuss on the show, you can visit our website at cardboardandwine.com. If you have feedback on the show or suggestions for a future show, you can send us a tweet at Board and Wine, email us at cardboardandwine at gmail.com, or as we mentioned, you can check out photos of the games we've been playing on Instagram at Cardboard and Wine. And be sure to check it out to find details on our upcoming contest. And help us get to a 1,000 followers. You can also jump into our guild on BoardGameGeek. You can leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. Since we are a fairly new podcast, it helps new listeners find the show. All right, Mamie. Until next time. Cheers and happy gaming. gaming.